Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Are you interested in advertising with the Action Catalyst? Our listeners could be hearing about your brand right here, right now. For details, shoot us an email at info at theactioncatalyst.com. Welcome to the Action Catalyst. Today, we are very excited to have as our guest, Mr. Bruce Black. In his most recent iteration in his business growth, Bruce and his firm, IBG Business, focus on using his vast four decades of business experience to help middle market business owners improve their company's performance, lower their risk profile, and achieve maximum value in a sale. But he's not just an advisor. He's a person who has been there and built this business and built many, many other businesses. After graduating from Iowa State with degrees in political science and sociology, he started the way so many others do, and that's in sales. But eventually, he got started with beginning a company called McCord Travel Management. 29 years of age, was a co-founder. And over the next 22 years, he and his team grew that company from $0 to over $600 million in business with over 800 employees. They became one of the largest corporate travel management firms in the entire United States. And I think it's really interesting how Bruce took the strategy as leader and president. He said, our strategy is to serve the most demanding and least easily pleased clients. Quite different than the way most people go into business. These clients included some of the biggest cities of America's top law firms, consulting organizations, movie studios, entertainment companies, ad agencies, all the rest of that time. At the same time, as if that weren't challenging enough, he helped to found Graphic Corp, which was a recognition and inspirational awards company that eventually went on to become a company we're all familiar with, Successories. He also led the formation of Synergy, an alliance in the corporate travel area, starting from initial four countries to 54 countries spanning several continents. And all of these lessons have made him an incredible guest for us to have on the Action Catalyst. Today, he spends most of his time in Scottsdale, Arizona, being an active mentor to startup companies and an advisor to certain select clients. But he also takes plenty of time to be an avid hiker, motorcycle rider, and mountain biker, and hangs out with his wife in their black lab. So, Bruce, thank you so much for making time, and welcome to the Action Catalyst. Honored to be here, Dan. Thank you. Well, over these uh, 40 years of building businesses and lessons that were learned, I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners some of the key decision points that you hit along the way, key bits of advice or times when you had to pivot suddenly, basically the twists and turns that have enabled you to be in the position of, of a trusted advisor and, 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 and helper of companies as they grow. It's, um, it's a broad question and certainly a lot of places you could touch down. I think I would probably start with sort of the core fundamentals of how I look at the world. And to some degree, those pieces come together in many of the businesses that either I've helped create or I'm currently involved in today. And those are three touch points that I think are very important to me personally, which is vision, belief, and passion. You know, in vision, it's for me... Uh, it's a two-edged sword. It's the personal view, you know, sort of the self-image you have of yourself. And this old saying, you are what you think you are. And there's some, been some current sort of scientific uh, analysis of that component of sort of the power of positive thinking, the power of shaping what you want 
be how you look at things. And so I'm an optimist by nature, glasses half full, but in the spirit of not really coming from a privileged background in any way, and frankly, being a terrible student in high school and tried to flunk out in my freshman year of college and then realized that learning was such an important part of how I could reshape what my opportunities are in the future. So my vision of myself became a self-image of someone who could achieve, who could accomplish. And so I use that vision and to some degree in the same way you shape a strategy and communicate that strategy to others what it looks like, how do you picture it, how can you put it in words, how can you make it real, how do you bring it to life in a personal way. You know, the one word I, I, I started with those three, vision, belief, and passion. Passion is a very personal thing, so it's important that when you bring it to life for others as best you can, you make it personal for them. So it drives commitment and it drives an understanding of what do we want, what do we expect, how will we achieve those results? And what's the personal commitment I have to make to, to have that happen? So in, in the course of all those business efforts, at its core, and frankly, it's challenged by many things, the reality of what's really happening, the ways in which either competitors or circumstance or strategic forces outside your control come to put, you know, it's the old God laughs when we make plans. It's sort of the same way with strategy. As soon as you think you know what's going to happen and you build an image and an outcome for how it might happen, things change. Right. So the dynamics of all these things are difficult to maintain, but if you're committed and you really have a belief and a passion for what you're trying to do, you'll overcome many of those things and be successful in whatever those individual components of that long-term plan might look like. Right. Now, if we could drill a little bit deeper, you mentioned that you kind of struggled in college. You didn't necessarily enter college with the self-image as a difference maker and an impactor of the world, but then you changed that. What were some of the things that caused you to change that? Because it all starts with how we see ourselves. Uh, there's an old saying, I, I frankly think I might've gotten it from Mac years ago. If it's going to be, it's up to me. And that sort of individual ownership of who you are and what you can accomplish, it's truly up to you. And if you embrace that you're, you can be more than what your roots or your history or your current education or learning might allow, and you make a commitment to be more than that, learning's been such an important part of sort of my my sophomore year in college going forward, I realized that applying myself, learning, figuring out different ways of viewing the world and in how I might apply that as a sociology and political science major in the work of influencing people, in the work of building teams or having them understand how to do things differently. It's, it's that sort of self-image of this is what I want. I don't want to be constrained by barriers that are imposed by me. And if I don't allow barriers to, to be imposed by me, I can easily sort of overlook the barriers that might be readily available to be, to, to, to be put in your way in the future. So sort of no barriers, do, do whatever is needed, put the work in, and the outcomes that you envision can become real. Hmm. So first step is to get rid of the self-imposed barriers that may be caused by improper thinking. Exactly right. 
What are some of the common ones that you see in people that are either entrepreneurs or striving to grow their businesses or just life in general? What are some of these self-imposed barriers? Well, one of the one of the barriers I think that's sort of endemic in people is they don't like change. Change is hard. I remember in the 1995 movie of uh, Bridges of Madison County, Clint Eastwood character played by Clint Eastwood say, "Make change your friend. It'll always be there for you." And in the world of change is hard. That's the ba- that's the bad news. The good news is change is hard. So that. If you embrace change, if you realize that there's no way to stop that train, just get on it and, and and play it out. The opportunities to be more both strategic and be effective in overcoming the challenges and the complexities of any business, more frankly, any experience in life, the, the realities are you come at it with sort of a different game plan for how do I embrace it? How do I use it? How do I understand it? How do I think? I, how do I think about what might change, what might come, what forces could impact the way in which we either currently do business, the way we operate, the way we believe our outcomes will come to life? And if you do that, you're you're much more able to emotionally manage. I love change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Taking the point of view, it is my friend. Embrace it. And I say it's it's good news because if it's so hard for others to overcome change or organizations to deal with it in the time they need, you'll be more successful against those competitors. You'll be more effective as a team in realizing what you can do, making plans to do things differently as those change signals appear. And that was a, that's that's one driver. I think the other one is not this isn't this is not a surprise to a lot of people, but. Attitude, your personal attitude is the only thing you really control. It's the only thing you really can control. I can't control change. I can't control what other people do. I can only manage how I look at the issues, the world, the the things that are important to me. And so if I manage my attitude in ways as a business person, as a leader, as a mistake maker, um, I'll have an opportunity to to be more positive about both what went wrong and what I can learn from it. So for me, managing your own attitude has been incredibly important in, in, in keeping me and the organizations I was involved in, the teams I worked with, more comfortable that we can only do what we can do, but we do that really well. It's, it's going to be a magical outcome. Mm-hmm. Is that part of what led you to the strategy of trying to court the most difficult to please clients in, in the travel service business? <laughs> it, it, it was, and, it, <laughs> and if and if I take credit for being so smart to do that, the the reality was we had zero experience in travel. We'd never done it before. We were starting from zero, and the the world that we competed with were some of the biggest multi billion dollar competitors in the space for the whole time we were doing business. So if we wanted to carve out a place strategically that we could hold, it's go where no one else can afford to go or will want to go. And that's the plan we made. Let's find the most demanding, most difficult, quickest to lose clients, ask for their absolutely, totally, very important people who are the most dissatisfied and let us serve them. And if we do that well, you'll give us more of your business. 
Nothing more than that. That's the commitment we have for it. That's the business we built. And so putting plans in place where no is not a acceptable answer as part of our business model. Exceed is a lot more valuable than meets in terms of expectations because there's no there's no differentiating differentiation in being the same. That people are the only thing strategically that makes us different than somebody else. So how we execute, never never starting with no, always building a relationship of trust. That and and to do that every in effect, every day, every week, for years and years, you know, the the last thing in our business model was we had no net, like a trapeze artist who has a net in case they might slip mm-hmm. and fall. We told our people we have zero net, and we told every customer we want we don't want a net. Mm-hmm. You, we want you to have the right to leave us anytime we don't perform. Period. That's the commitment we made. That's the expectation they had, and. Fortunately, even with you know the, the the bumps and grinds that businesses go through and trying to get that right every day, it, it became the singular strategic position we took that we never gave up. Well, I'd like to point out to our listeners that the very first client that you won was still with you 22 years later when you sold the company. I think that's the proof of the pudding. Absolutely. That means a great deal. Now, to go from zero to 600 million also meant trying to form the right relationships with associates and team members. How, how do you look at people when you want to add someone to your team? What are some of the factors that you try to consider before bringing someone on board, something that you're creating? You know, if I, if I speak specifically to McCord, just as an example, um, and it applies pretty much in most anything else I've done. In, when you're trying to create an environment where the passion for service and the bar that's been set to meet it is so high, you have to start with people who are willing to commit. And how do you figure that out? Well, they might come with references of or referred by good people that already work for us or people we know. We might interview them through seven different people to determine do they have the personal sort of uh, sense that service is critical to their view of what they like, what they do. And that could be account managers who aren't literally dealing with one customer. Our, our, our sort of rule of thumb was if we don't serve five customers, we serve none. And that means inside every major company, the, the, the kind of clients we chose were were clients that that solved problems as opposed to sold things. So they solved legal issues. They managed consulting outcomes that solved problems for companies. They were involved in architectural design. They were involved in producing movies. They were they were solving problems. So they were quite valuable entities in their company, very demanding, and needed an immense amount of support in a variety of ways. But the five customers inside every client, and this is not so different for lots of companies, we had the traveler, very sophisticated demanding person, a travel assistant who took care of all of the records, relationships, issues, on-the-road planning, full-time support, have travel managers who manage the overall travel programs within the firm. You had a CFO who managed the financial outcomes of the decisions you made in supporting the firm. You had the CFO or the managing partner. Those five customers were very different. So we had to hire people that could work in each of those layers and provide services and support and management and systems and reporting and KPI outcomes that 
those individual business customer owners would like. And we had to get that right every day. And we had to get that right for every one of those customers. And we had to have different people supporting each of those needs. So looking for people who could do those jobs well was, was the easy part. Finding people who were committed passionately to doing that every day is harder. Getting people to embrace being part of a team and knowing their, knowing their role, living it properly, expecting and trusting others to do the same thing was part of what you gave them when they come. How did, how did you build that in? What training and development did you provide? How did you communicate those things with such regularity that it wasn't just a sometimes comment? It was a committed statement of who we are, where we're going, and, and you know, it's non-negotiable. So, if, so finding people that were willing to work in that kind of environment and give that much was always challenging. The longer we did it, the better off, the better we were at it. I guess the, the the last place that's, if you don't mind, Dan, just one more thought. Having um, a growth plan that started in 1993, where we took the business from 200 million to 600 million, required us to continue to add business organically. But in a big way, we targeted San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York strategically as you know very large international hubs for business travel. And in doing that, we targeted acquisitions of three major players in those markets to build out our our offering. And those companies weren't for sale. So getting putting a plan together that allowed us to make those acquisitions of businesses that weren't for sale, convincing an owner who never thought they'd work for anybody else to work for our larger organization and have each of those very talented people doing very talented work in exactly the same way we did it to stay and feel good about working in a bigger company, which they may not have said that morning when they got up, gee, I'd like to work for a bigger company. Mm-hmm. Gee, I'd like to work for a company that's you know national instead of local. I'd like to work for somebody who's you know, different than who we are. And to get that to happen became, in effect, how, how, do you, how do you ask them to put your clothes on, in effect? The same clothes we wear, we want them to wear the next day. We couldn't do that because they had cultures of their own. They felt strongly about it. So in the course of making those acquisitions, with every major acquisition, we tore up our culture visibly. And we said, our, culture's, our culture is over because we're, you know, it's, only, it's only as good as our newest members. So we would put people together from different teams and different companies with facilitators to talk about what culture do you want? knowing, frankly, that most of them would say, the culture we have is the culture that we want. And we knew the cultures were similar enough, but we needed them to create that, that identity of who they were today as opposed to who they were yesterday. And when they came out that end with, gee, we're the same. We want the same things. We have the same definition for culture. This, this is very different than what I thought. So that was a way of, in effect, retooling very talented people to look at their new world in a way that was positive and accepting and empowering that allowed us to sort of move faster in the, in, in the ways in which we added people and, and changed our offering in various parts of the country. I, I think that's remarkable, Bruce. So in effect, you slowed down in order to speed up. Absolutely. For the culture, you, you slowed down, you got everybody involved and everybody on board and created a brand new picture for a brand new group of people. I think that's fantastic. Thank you. 
Now, along the way with that, you mentioned that there were themes that you continually repeated and emphasized and promoted from onboarding all the way through. Uh, in your experience, as you've looked at companies that are maybe struggling somewhat, is, is part of it a problem with themes or they're trying to be all things to all people or they don't have a set of what you would call vision, belief, and passion for what they're doing? I'm kind of curious what you think holds a lot of companies back from moving up to those next levels as you've done so brilliantly. I, I think uh, there is a, a bit of a disconnect often. And sometimes, sometimes it might be clear starting out what your vision, your belief, your passions are and, and how you've, in, in effect, used it in a smaller organization to, to win more often. But as organizations change, as entrepreneurs get larger organizations to run, you know, the, the disciplines of addressing those fundamental questions of what's our culture? How has our culture changed? Is our culture different than what we started out as? Is it something we still want? And I, I know you think fondly of this statement, and I believe it 100%. You know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. If you focus on the culture that's there, and that's, you know, it's, it's not having fun, although that's a part of it in most cases. It's being clear about what you are and what you expect and how you'll operate and how you'll treat people and what expectations you have for in doing those things the right way. What will we accomplish together? And I think that's, it was a challenge for me for sure and a challenge for our team to as we grew and expanded, our ability to communicate was no longer face-to-face -face or one big office. It was multiple offices on different parts of the country, different sides of the country, and many client-based offices all over uh, the United States. So getting face-to-face -face or having an ability to talk had to change. So the way we communicated became multifaceted. But I think one area that I learned early, and I think I still see in many of the clients I work with, a challenge is you can never communicate enough. There is, if you communicated all the time, there'd be more demand for more communication because people want to understand what we're doing, where we're going, why we're doing it, what's, what's, the, what's the purpose, of, what's the why that we're doing this, and then how do we do it? And so multiple ways of communicating clarifying what your role your role is clarifying the direction of the company and why making it simple because it's 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 easy to sort of lose people with long dialogue it's better and frankly more valuable to sort of keep hammering away with little messages little vignettes little stories little insights little examples discussions of of failures or mistakes all the ways that transparency and trust and accountability uh, and commitment are created is through a, a, a sort of a hardwired commitment from not just the owner or the CEO or the entrepreneur, but the, the leadership team. And then over time, the managers, over time, the peers in communicating and supporting the message of the company and what we're doing and why. And so I think culture in, in, in its broadest sense is one of the places where it's it's hardest to maintain as you grow. Uh, it's easy to take for granted, and it's 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 very readily disrupted if it's not cared for. 
So for the leader, it's one of the prime responsibilities is every day. Remember, we have to nurture and take care of culture because otherwise it will erode and disappear eventually with, despite our desire to be otherwise. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's awesome. I give you one. I, I could give you one example that was very small, but sure. it was it was it struck me at the time as why why didn't we think of this earlier? And we would as we grew, we were recruiting a lot of people. And in the world I operate today, and the businesses I work with, and the understanding of business owners that I that I get feedback from on a regular basis, recruiting good talent is extremely difficult. And in many industries, you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a fight to the death to get the best people. So, recruiting and keeping and understanding people uh, and putting them in the right spots and getting them to embrace what you're doing versus someone else is a challenge. And our organization sometimes had this internal debate about when people come, you know, do do we trust them right away or do we put them through this? 60-day transition period. They don't get their insurance for 60 days. They're a full-time employee, but you know they're in this limbo land. Mm -hmm. And one simple, subtle message that they were in limbo land is they had an office or a, or a cubicle or a workstation, and every one of them had a $15 imprinted name, their name on that badge after the 60 days were up. And we woke up one day and said, why in the world are we doing this? We're, we're demonstrating a lack of respect, a lack of trust, a lack of commitment by saying you only get your name tag after 60 days. So we changed the rule overnight and we said, every, every time we hire somebody, their name plate is going to be printed. The day they show up, it's going to be on their desk. They're going to have engagement books. They're going to have mentors who take them through the company. We're going to do all the things that demonstrate. We, we we know they're the right people for this company because we spent a lot of time making sure of that beforehand. And we want them to feel respected the day they walk in, trusted the day they walk in, and a team member the day they walk in. It was a, it was a small change, but it, it in many ways reshaped our the way in which we communicated what it means to join this organization. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, more than a small change. Bruce, it's a very significant change because you're asking people to be all in and be fully committed. And by withholding that official recognition for 60 days, we're saying, well, we want you to be committed, but we're not committed to you. So really, you're leading by example by making that change. Yeah, we were letting $15 stand in the way of us sending all those signals. Shame on us. <laughs> what they call majoring, <laughs> majoring in the minors. <laughs> That's absolutely fantastic. Well, if I can ask you about your strategy, I guess, when you deal with a brick wall in business that you, you've never encountered before, it could be from a financing standpoint, it could be unexpected turnover in your staff, it could be some change in the external environment. Is there a, a mindset or a rubric that you try to go through personally in dealing with these unexpected brick walls and then how you involve people in working toward those solutions? I, I'll give you two examples of ways in which I look at it personally. And there's an old saying that I've carried around for 40 years. There is no problem so big that it can withstand, sustain thought. And I use that personally, sometimes, you know, ad nauseum, because I'm 
I'm often, in the course of either the work I do today and advising business owners about the sale of their business, the positioning of their business, the risk factors associated with what they have today and how to modify those, they have a better chance of getting the right sale and outcome. Or in the entrepreneurial and CEO work I've done in the past, the the problems you get are sometimes self-imposed, but mostly they're relating to competitive positions, strategic changes in the marketplace, economics and fundamentals for how the business is performing, team building, and et cetera. So those problems are, are always available at any, at any juncture. Some of them are death door problems that if you don't solve it, the business is over. And you've had a few of those, but problems are big. And the higher you get in an organization, particularly the listeners you probably have eagerly associated with your podcast, their, their problems are not easy to solve. So mm-hmm. I depend on myself first to give it the attention and time and effort. And sometimes a, guy, a good warm shower in the morning gives me breakthroughs that I couldn't get the night before. Or a long ride on my mountain bike could get let me think through a problem with no interruptions and nothing to worry about except the next rock in front of me. And so you take the time to do that. But in many ways... Having trusted, diverse voices that you can hear from about this problem, reaching out to experts in some cases, reaching out to others who may have had similar experiences, reaching out to people that you trust could give you you know, good ways to think about the problem. It's, you know, it's all those things. And in the end, it, it boils down to what can you figure out? The second piece that I would say I I spend a lot of time doing is I play mental chess. I think about what are the options that I can sort of easily understand are possible to solve this problem. What are the costs? What what are the resource requirements? What are the changes in approach? Uh, How might I think about it differently? And then I try to set that aside and start over because I haven't thought about every solution. I haven't thought about every option. I've overlooked things. I've got you know, personal biases about how I would think about this problem, and I may not be thinking about it the way someone else would. So sometimes in the same way, using others to sound out, how would you see this? What have I missed? What could I consider that I haven't thought about? So that game of mental chess, looking for all the ways the game might play out and how you address that problem in some ways... Sometimes it boils down to, as it did in 1984 when Mac and I were growing both McCord and Graphic Corp fast, you learn that early entrepreneurial lesson of your cash gets burnt up as you're growing fast. So in order to keep the business opportunity going, we had to look for other options for how we raise funds and encouraged others to participate in our companies to help us grow them. Or we may not have either made it or potentially just wouldn't have grown as fast and as far. So different ways to solve problems. Some of them are financial. Most of them are not. And being able to, I guess, both talk to yourself and use others to keep looking for things you may not see and find the best answer you can for solving that problem. I believe you must be a practitioner of self-talk. Because you said several things today that are phenomenal affirmations. I love the one, there's no problem so big that it can withstand sustained thought. (laughs) Tell us about self-talk and and how you value that in terms of internal motivation and direction setting and keeping your equilibrium. Yeah. Well, 
you know, I'll go back to the personal vision. You are what you think you are. Uh, I've, I've never allowed myself to be constrained by where I came from or where I went to school. And in many cases, I've, I've never been constrained by what I should know. We started a travel company with zero experience in travel. Uh, we, we, we built a graphics company with limited exposure to how that kind of business model would work. Uh, we've uh, done a number of things along the way, including you know, the investment banking work I, I do. I made a number of acquisitions at, at McCord and in other ways, but the dynamics of sitting on the other side, even though I had many experiences talking to sellers about why they should join forces with us and how we might put that together as a deal, the dynamics of advising a business owner are tough. So the the ability to learn and the desire to learn, I guess probably in reverse order. I have a big desire to learn. I have a I have, I have a happy outcome of making mistakes because each time I make a mistake, I learn more. Mm-hmm. And so my self-talk is a bit of the glass is half full, but it's also go big or go home. You know, if it's, if it's worth doing, you know, do it well. If it's, you know, winning is about who wants it more. So if some parts of what you do is we're going to accomplish more than others, then engage others in doing it and be clear about it, transparent about it, and passionate about it. So my self-talk is do what you want, but be prepared. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I sort of bump up against all those things in a, on a regular basis. And believe me, um, it's never been perfect. I remember the the week before 1984 when the family fund that found us and was going to make a big investment in McCord and allow me to run that company. And they were going to fund and fund its growth over the next 17 years. As it turned out, the public company CEO, who was one of the family members said to me, do you think you could build a $300 million company? And I said, in the spirit of total transparency and stupidity, I said, I don't think I could. And I look back on it. I don't know if that was the right answer or the wrong answer at the time. I thought it was the wrong answer because he said, Oh, sure you can. Sure you can. We'll help you, but you, you can do it. And in the end, I think looking back on it, it might have been the best answer because he realized I was self-aware enough to know that I didn't have the skills then to do that. I didn't have the, the, the understanding of business practices, procedures, and the bumpers they ended up giving me over time for quarterly reporting, annual business planning. The things that challenged me to become a better business person, I didn't know. So maybe it was the honest answer of, I don't think I could. And to talk about self, self, self-talk, self 13 years later, I'm with eight forum members in my YPO group that I've been with for three years before that. And I said, I got a business plan and a strategy that says we can go to 600 million. I don't know if I can do that. And you know what they said? Hmm. Sure you can. So... Yeah, doubt's no stranger, believe me, sure, sure. to most of us. I, I suffer from time to time with the same imposter complex many other CEOs do. You know, you're a fraud. Why are you there? You shouldn't have this job. Somebody could do it better than you. So it, it, isn't, it isn't a smooth road. It isn't a perfect road. Self-talk helps overcome those things. Sometimes just a few kicks in the butt by a few friendly voices like the CEO of the public company or my forum members saying, you can do it. 
Bruce, it's phenomenal, the lessons that you're sharing. And I cannot even believe how fast our time has gone. I'm inspired by what you've said. I'm inspired by your humility, and I'm inspired by your transparency. And above all, the fact that despite all of your successes, there's a thirst for learning and a thirst for growing that comes through so obviously in your tone of voice. Thank you so much for sharing with everybody today. It's been my pleasure, Dan. Thank you for having me. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.